0: Good morning, Celebrate Church. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome back to our college students, and happy new year again to everybody. Um, Let's dive right in. I'm so excited about this new series that I'm calling Seven. It's about the seven letters and messages that were given to the seven churches mentioned in Revelation chapter two and three. And I really believe that our hearts should be stirred and challenged by these messages. You know, Jesus offers some praise and some criticism for these seven churches, and I believe that God's word is timeless, and I believe that we can apply these messages even though we're 2,000 years later to our own lives and even to the life of Celebrate Church. So let me tell you a little bit about Revelation. I know it can be a daunting task. I don't know if you're like me and you've ever uh, stayed up late and thought, hey, I'm going to read the Bible. And if you've ever gotten into the book of Revelation, it can be a little bit scary. But let me just give you the general idea behind what's going on. So Revelation was a book that's written by John. And I want to be clear and let you know that it is John, the disciple of Jesus, who then became an apostle. It is not John the Baptist. So what he does is he writes down events that happened before his time. He's also writing down events that happened during his current time and events that he believes are yet to happen and sees happening in the future based on what is shown to him in this revelation. So God had a purpose in revealing these things to John, and I really challenge you. I encourage you to read Revelation chapters 1 through 3 uh, this week and over the next few weeks to dive in and maybe even look at the church and the message uh, that each week is on so that you can fully grasp what God is trying to say to the church even today in 2019. So Revelation chapter one, verses nine through 11. It says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So let me just show you what the image of or the map of what this looks like. All of these cities would be found on the western coast of modern-day Turkey And then they, uh, the modern-day Turkey actually uh, on the west coast is um, touched by the Aegean Sea. And down in the South Aegean Sea is where the island of Patmos is, where John is writing from. Now, by most accounts, John, uh, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. He gets exiled by a Roman emperor because of his preaching of the gospel. So when he says in verse 9 that I'm a brother and a partner with you in the tribulation, he's talking about the current trouble that they're facing then. Now if you read further in the book of Revelation, you'll hear about that word being used again, tribulation, and it has a future sense to it, that there will be a coming day of tribulation for the church of Jesus Christ. So when that emperor dies though, John The person who's receiving this revelation, a disciple of Jesus and the then apostle, his sentence on Patmos gets canceled. And let me be clear about this. Most uh, authority on the subject says that John had free reign of the island, but he could not leave the island. So it's important for you to understand he wasn't necessarily chained up in a basement the whole time or in stocks the whole time, but that he had the ability to and access to writing instruments and um, scrolls and things like that during his time. This is how he's able to get the message out. In fact, there is some uh, idea that maybe individuals from these churches who knew that he got exiled there would have came to receive the letter from him directly from visiting Patmos and taking it back to the churches. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 12 and 13. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Jump to verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And verse 20 says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let me just help you understand this because trying to dive into the imagery that's present here, sometimes we can start getting lost, The seven stars are, in the Greek, the word is angelos, or angelos, and we translate that angel. But that is not a white uh, flowing gown on a winged creature sort of image. I want you to think about it. The other translation or the other way to understand it would just simply be messenger. And let me ask you this. Why would John, a human need to write letters to angels in heaven, right? I mean, if God is there, then God can give his message directly to them. There's no need for a human uh, medium to be able to write these down. So understand that it's a human messenger and that would be the leader of the church. That would be the pastor's and the, those who are leading the church. And the seven lampstands that are mentioned are seven churches. There are seven churches that were known in the first century after Jesus died and after the Holy Spirit came. Um, then we see that those who were believers went to other places, and as they grew in fellowship with others, they began to meet together and have churches established. So then John writes the message that he hears, and the first one is to the city, to the church in the city of a place called Ephesus. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. There's a theater in Ephesus, and we have an image up on your screen today. It's mentioned in Acts chapter 19. There's a really incredible story there about something happening where the Apostle Paul is ambushed and the others that are with him, and they, be, they get brought in and put up before an angry mob. Now, if you look at the picture on the screen or if you look up one uh, online, you'll see that this giant open-air stadium, this theater, could hold up to 25,000 people. So it was a very large city with the capability and modern, like what we would say, a big city with some modern day during that time um, capacity or access to things like this. They also had another thing called the Library of Celsus. Here's a picture of what that looks like. In the first century, this library would have been the third largest in the world, in the ancient world, behind only the cities of Alexandria and Pergamum. It's a, it's an incredible sight. There are ruins that are available to visit even today. And also in the city of Ephesus, uh, there is something very important for you to consider while you're reading through and while we're listening to these messages of the churches. I want to give you some background. The city of Ephesus was a city that had a giant temple to a false god, actually a goddess, And if you've ever seen her, she's a Greek goddess with a bow and an arrow, with the arrow in the bow drawn back. Her name is Artemis, and she is the goddess of the hunt. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this temple that was in Ephesus. So remember, as we look at these things and as we think about what Jesus is saying or going to say to each of these churches, We need to stop for just a moment and appreciate a couple things. We need to appreciate the fact that Jesus is actually caring enough to speak directly to the leaders of each of these churches. I believe with all of my heart that the Holy Spirit still speaks today. And so we've got to understand that his message, the message that Jesus is delivering to those churches, not only had application then, almost 2,000 years ago, but then we should ask ourselves this question, what is Jesus saying today in 2019, what is he saying to the city of Clinton and the church celebrate church? So let's jump into the message that he hears, that he receives, and then that he uh, writes down for the Ephesians. Verse 1 of chapter 2 in Revelation says this, To the angel or messenger of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Verse three, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, he says in verse 4, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Verse 5 says this, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Verse 6 says this, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let me stop here for just a moment and tell you a little bit or what little we do know about the Nicolaitans. They were followers of a man named Nicholas, And for what we know, he was a polytheist who then um, came to faith in Jesus Christ, but then at some point compromised and wanted to allow Jesus to simply be added to the other gods that were worshiped. And so Jesus is telling this church, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, those who have compromised and just simply added Jesus to their life rather than letting him be the sole priority. And he says, I hate this too. So verse seven, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I want you to go back to verse two and I I wanna highlight a few things through this passage. Verse two, Jesus says, I know your works. Did you realize that God knows all of your actions? He sees how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids. He sees how you serve in the church. He sees what you give. He knows your thoughts. The Bible even says this, He even knows the number of hair on your head. So Jesus intimately knows us and he's concerned about us. And in this moment, it's kind of like Jesus is the CEO. He's walking around these these seven lampstands that are there. He's walking around and he's looking, he's evaluating, and he's about to give them basically what you would maybe call a performance review, much like you'd get at work Even this week, you might go in and the boss says, Okay, it's time for your review, and he'll highlight some good things. He might highlight a few negatives and tell you these are areas that need improvement, and then go from there. So, Jesus, like any good manager or CEO, he starts out with the positives. So, he says, This, he says, I'm so proud of you. You are so hardworking. You've been patiently enduring. There, There is some great things about you, Ephesians. You won't tolerate wickedness, and you hold fast to the truth. Verse 3, I know that you're enduringly patient and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. i tell you what, here's what I know. The church, any church that has endured for a time, that's a healthy church, and that's making an impact in its community. Any one of those types of churches have at their core a group of people who have endured and persevered. And I believe we have that same sense here at Celebrate Church 2,000 years later. It's people like that say, that would say things like, I'm going to serve when I don't feel like serving. I'm going to lead even when it's hard and I'm tempted to throw in the towel. How many of you have ever felt like you wanted to throw in the towel? Lift your hands, right? That's a lot of us, if not all of us. We've felt like that before. and Maybe you've gone through uh, not just a, a Sunday here at church, but maybe you've gone through a season like that where you just kind of lost that initial momentum. But there are people who are enduring who say things like, I'm going to push through and sacrifice and make it happen because I know that what I'm doing is not just for me or for the current people I see. I'm doing it for the people that we hope to reach. I'm doing it for the kingdom of God and for the glory of Jesus Christ. So we've got to think about it in these terms. Because I really believe that I can honestly say that this is true. This part is true about Celebrate Church. And I am so thankful for those of you that serve and have endured that core group that continues to power Celebrate Church. But then Jesus dives into some negative area. And he starts talking about those areas of needed improvement. I'll never forget years ago receiving a performance review at a finance company that I was working for during uh, before I had met Amy and I guess at the beginning of meeting Amy. And I'll never forget sitting down with the manager and she brought me in, offered me coffee and all that stuff. We sat down and she began to give me my review. Now, she started out with the positives just like any other great manager would do. And then she said something that just, stunned me. (laughs) And I sat there for just a moment thinking, wait, did, did I just get in trouble? And here's what she said. She said, now there, these are some great qualities. I really appreciate all of these things. And you know, before you go, I just wanted to share with you a, a few small things But I think that they are some areas where you have the most ability to improve. And I'm so excited about your improvement, your coming improvement in these areas. And I thought, what is she talking about? Wait, she is telling me that I'm not doing a good job in this area. So Jesus is doing, he's doing the same exact thing because he's diving into the negative and talking about these areas of needed improvement. Verse four, he says, but I have this against you. You've lost that love and feeling, right? He says, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Now I gotta tell you, church, this is a sad statement. It, it might be, and I thought about it this week in uh, developing this message, it, it quite possibly is the saddest statement in all of Scripture, or at least in the top five. Jesus says, you, you loved me, but you've left me. The truth is this, that God never abandons us. And you have to believe that. It's on every page of our Bible, God's word that's been given to us. God never abandons his children. He's not like that. If he were like that, he wouldn't be worth serving. But here's the deal. We have the ability, the capacity to abandon him and to turn and walk away from him. So think now about Ephesus. That at the time of the writing that John is sending, it's about 30 years after another letter had been received that we have in our Bibles called the book of Ephesians. If if you'll recall, in Ephesians chapter 6, that famous passage of Scripture, it tells us there, or Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he tells them that you should stand firm in the faith, that you should be guarded with the full armor of God and stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, think about it. 30 years later, John is now writing to them, The first generation, like the originals, would have probably uh, died off at this point. And there's a new generation of Christians. There could have been previous Jews that converted to Christianity, but there would have been a lot of Gentiles that would have been polytheists. That means they believed in other gods or multiple gods and other gods, and then came into the faith in Jesus. And so while they're zealous for the truth, somewhere the original flame of passion that they had for Christ, had now flickered out. You know, they've endured and they've become seasoned saints, but Jesus says that they've lost that love that they had at first. So the question that I want to ask you today to consider is this. Have I lost the love for Jesus that I had at first? has my heart grown cold? Be honest, because here's the reality. If it has grown cold and you feel like the flames of love you had at first have flickered out, all you have to do is start taking steps back into the loving arms of Jesus. Because I'm making my way back to you. See, he's waiting like the prodigal father. I don't know where all these songs are coming from, but he's waiting for us like we are the prodigal. Now, you might say, oh, wait a minute, pastor. I'm no prodigal. I have not given up my, you know, taken my father's earnings and gone and whittled it away and done all this craziness and stuff like that. I'm a believer. I've been in the church. I serve in the nursery. I give regularly. I do all of these things. But regardless, If you are now at a place that looks different and has less love, you have less love in your heart today than you did when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ, then we need to understand that Jesus is standing ready with arms open wide to receive us let me help you out. You you might be here and you might say, "Okay, well, no, nah, I think I'm pretty good. Let's let's uh, let's wrap this up, Pastor. I think I ch- did a heart check and everything's great." But let me help you though, because I don't want you to rush through this. I want you to take a moment of what I would call like a, a self inventory. It's kind of like a heart checkup, maybe like a uh, sitting with the doctor and him evaluating you to see if there's any areas of needed improvement in your health. Maybe maybe you need to exercise more often. Maybe you need to drop a few pounds, lay off the sugar, whatever it might be that a doctor would tell you when you're diagnosed with heart disease. I, I want us to think about some symptoms in our own hearts that will help us determine where we're at. And these are three dead giveaway symptoms to look for. The first one is this, and that is you're complacent. Now, if you're complacent, that's a, it's a, something that happens to a lot of people, many of us, if not all of us, are guilty of this. Here's what that means. It means that you're satisfied with what is, and you've stopped dreaming of what could be. That's really what complacent means. The second symptom, it's a dead giveaway, would be you're treating your relationship with Jesus casually. Well, you know, I, I give when I want to or when I can. I serve. I serve, um, I serve whenever, I, whenever I get the chance to. I, I read my Bible. You know, I've read it once or twice this new year. You know, we're a dozen plus days in, and I, I've read it once or twice. When we treat our relationship casually, we've got to understand that there's a problem. This symptom is a dead giveaway to help us know that we're not where we should be, we're not where we could be, and we, we're not where we have been. And, and I can hear the loving words of Jesus to the church in Ephesus saying, would you just turn? Would you just come back to me and rediscover that love that you had at first. Here's here's what I know, there's a third symptom. It's a dead giveaway as well. And that's when our heart is no longer white hot like it was at first. When that happens, our heart and our affection gets drawn to other things. Now, there's nothing wrong with sports and activities for the kids and things like that, but we have got to be prioritizing our life. And if we are prioritizing our life correctly, God is on top of the pile, He's on top of the heap, He is the first in priority. It doesn't matter what the baseball, softball schedule and all those other things are. God comes first. And so we've got to understand that this is a dead giveaway. Compromise would be a dead giveaway for us to understand that we have a symptom of a heart that's growing cold. See, the people in Ephesus, they had apparently allowed compromise to become the norm for them. Remember, they were in a giant city with a massive temple to, a, to another god, to a false god. They had multiple options for gods to serve. There were many people who were polytheistic. That means they served many gods. And so then you've got to imagine, just put yourself back in those days and those times And think to yourself, there are Jews who served God, who then became Christians and accept Jesus as their Savior, Then you've got others who've never been a Jew. They've served all these other gods, and now they come to Jesus. They come to faith in Jesus because they hear this message of truth, and they want to embrace it, and they hear the words of Jesus that were spoken that says, I am the only way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We hear that that solitary message that continues to get driven in all of the Gospels and to all the letters to all the churches. So, But at some point, they've allowed compromise to come in. I refer back to the idea of the Nicolaitans that was there a few verses ago that they they wanted to just simply add Jesus in. But here's what Jesus says. You can't, if if I could give you the words of Jesus in modern language today, you can't add me to your life. I want it all. He's an all-in kind of God. And so... Here's what idolatry is. And you say, well, Pastor Dexter, you know, idolatry existed back then. I don't have any statues in my house. Uh, Yeah, I don't know what you really are referencing. Here's, Here's what it is. Idolatry in the human heart is when good things are allowed to become ultimate things. When when we have some good things in our life, and I'm not knocking those other activities and those other commitments and the other things that we do. I'm not knocking a work schedule that requires travel and time, whatever it might be. Those things might be good, but when they are allowed to become ultimate things, then we have we have reprioritized, and that can sneak up on any of us. We've gotta recalibrate from time to time, and I feel like, the beginning of a new year is a great time for us to do that, to be thinking about the priorities of our life and, and what we're gonna put first. And I would challenge you, not just because I'm the pastor, but because I'm a believer who lives a life of faith as well, just like you, I would challenge you to evaluate where God is on your priority list. We said it uh, in a recent series that it, we could borrow the words of Ricky Bobby, if you ain't first, you're last, and that's the way I think about it with God. If God's not first, then he's nowhere really on the list in our minds or in his. Uh, when, he, when he sees us, he sees the priorities of our life and he knows where he registers on that scale. So the Ephesians, their big mistake was allowing Jesus to fall in priority. Maybe that describes someone you know. Maybe if you're honest with yourself, maybe it describes you. Verse five, listen to what he says. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So look up at me for just a moment because if this describes you, if what we've been talking about so far describes you, then don't despair because drifting happens to most believers at some point in their spiritual journey. It's it's a natural thing that we we allow ourselves. It's a cycle that happens from time to time, but that's not a cop-out by any means, especially if you followed Christ for a while. But here's the great news there is hope. Jesus told them, you know, that song, that song hit me this morning as I was thinking about this message. It's too late to turn back now. I believe, I believe, I believe. Well, Jesus tells them it's never too late to turn back. So, how do you get back that loving feeling? that's been lost, let me share with you three ways that we need to we need to do this in our life on a regular basis in order to maintain that loving feeling. But also, if you've lost it and you can't find it and, and don't know where to start, this is what you do. The first thing is, is you do what he told the people in Ephesus to do, and that is to repent. Now, what repent means is not just asking for forgiveness, it means walking 180 degrees in a new direction. So it means making a choice, a willful choice to say, yes, God, I'm sorry, I turned from you and I've walked towards this other thing, these other things, these relationships, whatever it might be towards my job or my. I've exalted these other things, but God, I'm, I'm taking a moment, I'm asking you to forgive me And I am coming about face 180 degrees to walk back towards you. The second thing is that we've got to do if we've lost that feeling, that love that we had at first, we've got to recalibrate. And I'm telling you not to sound like Tony Robbins or anything like that, but I'm telling you, you as a believer have the power to change your mind, you have to change your mind. If, you, if you've if you ever been in a relationship with another human, there have been moments where you've had to make a decision and you've had to change your mind. You came upon new information and then all of a sudden it made sense and you thought, Oh, I was a real jerk and I shouldn't have been. That Oh, and you had to recalibrate. Well, here's what I'm encouraging you to see in the life of the Ephesians is that Jesus is calling them to recalibrate because if if I'm repenting, if I'm turning back from the thing I was doing and heading towards God, then what I'm doing is I've got to make a decision in my mind that then my feet begin to follow. And we... We have the power to change our mind as believers. We we can only do so with the help of God and with the word of God and with the grace of God. So we've got to change our thinking though. The third thing to do is to return. Come back. Come back and, and Jesus' words are echoed on the page. Do the things that you did at first. See, the danger of being in a long-term relationship is this. When love grows older, your heart can grow colder, but it doesn't have to. Jesus says, Jesus says. so you have to repent and turn around and do the things you did at first. See, we've got to take action. I want to encourage you. I want to, I'm begging you to not think about life in Christ or your spiritual journey with Jesus as some romantic comedy. Now you might laugh at that or think that's a weird illustration, but think about this. You've seen the romantic comedies. Two people, they fall in love, madly in love. They conquer a few small hurdles and then they live happily ever after. They've got all the money, the house, the kids, the car, whatever it is, and everything is wonderful, but the truth is life is not like that. Love is not like that. Your faith in Christ is not like that. It takes work, right? We've got to understand that emotion follows action. I, I want to stop and say that again so that it really drills into our hearts that we must understand emotion follows action. See, Jesus didn't say, just start feeling the way you used to feel, <laughs> right? The, the, the feelings you had at first, uh, find them in a drawer somewhere and start feeling them again. No, he didn't say that. He said, do the things that you did at first. There's a really important aspect to see in this letter to the Ephesians. And that is this, that Jesus says there's hope, but you've got to do something about it. Verse seven says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What an incredible reward this is that Jesus lays out. He says, if you repent, if you return to me, I will give to you the ability to eat of the tree of life. And and if you're like me, you might stop and think for a moment, wait, tree tree of life, where have I heard that before? Well, Jesus is mentioning it in the last book of the Bible that we have, Revelation, but he's referencing back to the very beginning Of creation in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. He's he's hearkening back to God's paradise, Eden. That's where the tree of life is. And sadly, Adam and Eve didn't eat from that tree. They rebelled against God, did the only thing they were told not to do. If you've got kids, you know what that's like. They, were, they did the only thing they were told not to do. They rebelled and they ate from the tree, the Bible says, of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did that sin entered the world and it wrecked us. It's wrecked our human relationships. It's wrecked our uh, even our view of God. It's it's brought disease and wickedness and all kinds of things. Sin has wrecked the world. But here's the beauty of it. Jesus says that I am making all things new. He's he uh, all throughout scripture, in the gospel specifically and beyond, in the New Testament, there's this thought and this image of being made new, being made, you are born again when you come to Jesus. And in fact, the word is clear that he is making all things new. The book of Revelation tells us that in the future heaven and earth, that in that time it said of him, behold, I am making all things new. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus if you're a believer. So anyone who loves me, that's that's my paraphrase or my uh, way to word it in today's language. Anyone who loves me and receives my love in their heart, anyone that loves me with all their heart will live with me forever in that new creation and will eat. All things will be restored. Listen to me, church. All things will be restored to the way that they should be and the way that we've lost. See, God has been working for thousands of years to redeem us and to bring us to the place where we can one day be in the paradise of God as it should have been from the beginning. Let me close by asking this simple question. Going back to the illustration of getting a checkup at a doctor's office, or maybe being told by a doctor you're at risk of heart disease or you've got some issues. In this moment, I I want you to be be the person that's being examined. You and the Holy Spirit are the only ones in the room. And I wanna ask you a simple question. I want you to ask yourself this question and it's this how's your heart today See if if you feel conviction in a message like this that's a good sign That means the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and that means your heart is listening It sh- it shouldn't be something to to um you know be embarrassed about necessarily as much as if you are willing to own up to it today, and if you're willing to then turn to the loving arms of Jesus and then take action and start to walk back in the right way, then he says, Your lampstand will remain. This church will remain. That's what he tells them in Ephesus. So receive God's invitation today. This is your chance. You've got a chance given to you today to repent and to return to your first love, to make the choice today to turn around and do the things you did at first. Right now, you're, you're being given the chance to humbly ask forgiveness and walk back in God's direction. I think about Lot's wife, you might be familiar with the story and I won't go into all the details but they're they're being rescued from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and she's given the instruction the only instruction and again she disobeyed and the bible says that she was told not to look back but that she did and the word of god tells us that she turned into a pillar of salt and you can do some bible study on that and do some digging on it but the thought that hits me is that when we turn back to God, we should have our face fully set and our heart fully set on him. That we shouldn't look back to the old life, to the enticements of those things or even to the things that we're walking away from today as a believer years into our relationship with Jesus, but that we should fully focus our heart in the direction where we're headed and that's towards Jesus I want to do something unconventional today because I I want you to know that you are in good company now we rarely do this or do this kind of thing but what I want you to do eyes up here I want you to look at me eyes wide open I don't want anybody to, to close their eyes but I want you if you say pastor you know what this message strikes a chord with me. I think I am a few degrees colder than where, where I was last year or two years ago or 10 years ago. Or you know what, pastor, you hit the nail on the head. Jesus' words are a clarion call to me. I am so far from where I used to be with him. Wherever you are on the scale, I want you, look at, look at me. I want you to raise your hand right where you are, and I want everybody to see it. See all these hands that are lifted up? Praise God. You say, Pastor, why are you celebrating this? Because I'm celebrating the fact that you've owned up and you are honest today about where you are with God. And here's the truth. We all need more of him than we have, right? So look at, look at all these hands. That's almost all of us today admitting and saying that, you know, pastor, my heart is cold. It's colder than it should be. So during our encore song in just a moment, I I want you, you can put your hands down. I want you to pray a prayer just like this and you could say something so simple and just say, Jesus, Lord, I've grown cold. Would you forgive me? I I want what we used to have and some. Amen. Just a simple prayer like that. You know, Lord, fill me with your spirit today and help me on the journey back to you in Jesus' name. And that prayer today, said in faith and with your full heart. Of a sincere heart behind those words literally can shape the direction of your week and shape the direction of your life in the coming months and years if you would just do what he encouraged the Ephesians to do, which is repent and return to him. So decide today to begin your journey back to the God who loves you forever and always. You know, I I tell my children that I love them forever and always, no matter what, and with all of my heart. And so today is the day to take action. The ball is in your court. We've got to see that this is a fresh opportunity for us to come back to him. So the worship team is going to have one more song, and during that song is when I want you to Just resist the temptation to sing along with them and just make your place, your seat right where you are, make it a place of prayer and just speak to the Lord, whisper a prayer to him and tell him that you want back what you've lost and that you're going to do your best to start walking in his direction with his love in your heart and with his grace empowering you to do so.